All right, now we're set. Good, good evening, everybody. It's good to see you all. Welcome tonight. Uh, can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 3? Now, as we were studying uh, last time, we uh, got as far as um, chapter 3, about verse 15. But uh, as chapter 3 opened up, we saw how that Moses was, uh, was uh, leading the sheep his father-in-law Jethro's sheep, and he saw a sight that uh, intrigued him. It was a bush that was on fire. Now, I think Moses had probably seen various bushes on fire in the desert there. It's pretty hot, and, uh, you know, fires occur. The thing that drew him to this bush was it was on fire, but it was not being burned up. And uh, as we said last week, it was a, a picture of God's grace. Um, the bush, in fact, the word bush there in Hebrew means thorn. And the tradition says this was the acacia bush, the thorn bush of the desert. Thorns are a type of sin. Fire is a type of judgment. So we have a model of grace. We have sin being burned, and yet uh, the bush not being, or sin being judged, but the bush not being burned up. It just signifies how that, that Jesus took our, our penalty. He bore our uh, judgment, and uh, it allows sinners to receive God's forgiveness but as he draws near the bush the Lord begins to speak to him and uh, the Lord says to Moses I want you to go to Pharaoh first to the elders of Israel to tell them I have sent you to deliver them and then go to Pharaoh and tell him the same and to let my people go to worship me and so on and uh, Moses uh, said um, verse 13 he said to God indeed when I come to the children of Israel and say to them the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Verse 15, And God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, uh, and this is my memorial to all generations. Now, the Amplified has that last verse, This is my name forever, and by this name I am to be remembered to all generations. Now, when Moses said to the Lord, Look, you're sending me to the elders of Israel to tell them that God, the God of your fathers, the word God there is Elohim in the Hebrew, and of course that was the the, the title for God used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning Elohim created the heavens and the earth. The idea is that that's the title of creator God. It's kind of a generic name for God, okay? The creator God. And Moses said, you know, when I go to the elders and tell them that the God of their fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, well, what's his name? What am I going to tell them? What am I going to tell them? Okay, then God told Moses that his name is Yahweh. And uh, it means I am. But you need to understand, and we talked about that last time, but you need to understand that that was not the first time that God had revealed his name to the ancestors of his covenant people. You don't have to turn there, but way back in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, we read, And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord, Yahweh. We also know that um, that name was familiar to the patriarch. We, we see in Genesis chapter 14, verse 22, 
15 verse 1, 25 verses 21 and 2, 28 verse 13, and Genesis 49 verse 18. They all knew God by that name. So the question is, if God's people already knew his name, why did Moses ask the Lord to reveal his name to him so he could pass it on to the elders? It could be that after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, they had forgotten the name. I don't think so, but that's possible. Others have proposed this as an explanation. I I kind of agree with this. Uh, Others have said, look, uh, when, when Moses was asking God his name, he wasn't really technically saying, well, what is your name? He was basically saying, you know, what does it mean? All right. What, what, what kind of a God are you is the idea. You know, what does your name mean? And it was at that point that God explained to Moses, my name is Yahweh, but it means to be or the, the becoming one. And as we pointed out in our study last time, uh, that name means that God is the eternal self-existent one who is the same yesterday today and forever the god who wants to become to us whatever we need and if you weren't here last time we spent uh, a good portion of time explaining that that god is the becoming one whatever we need he wants to become that to us if we need peace he wants to become our jehovah shalom if we need provision he wants to become our jehovah jireh these are compound names where you have I am, or I will become, and then a noun describing whatever it is we need. Of course, the greatest thing we needed was salvation. And that's why God became our Jehovah Shua, or our Jesus. All right. And then God said at the end of verse 15, this is the name that from this point on you will always remember me by. This is the name I want you to forever remember me by and to address me by. Verse 16. God goes on, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. So guys, after 400 years of of being down in Egypt, the time had finally come for the fulfillment of Joseph's prophecy uh, in Genesis 50, verse 24. Remember what Joseph said as he was dying. He said, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You remember the book of Genesis closed with a coffin in Egypt. Joseph's body was placed in a coffin on display in state, okay? He was a dignitary. And they actually buried him in a coffin, and it was left above ground that people might know that here was, is a great man. But it also served as a reminder to the children of Israel that someday God was going to visit them and deliver them out of Egypt and bring them back to the promised land, the land that he had swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, verse 18, then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. 
But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand. What is this idea, let us go three days into the wilderness that we might sacrifice to the Lord? Was that the duration of the time God was asking or wanting Pharaoh to let them go? No. But he started off small, okay, small. I like what one commentator said. He said, and I quote, God presented the smaller request of Pharaoh first so that the request would be as appealing and as easy to accept as possible. He did this so Pharaoh would have no excuse at all for refusing God and hardening his heart, end quote. Well, of course, he did, as we're going to see next time. But when God said in verse 19, But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand. There are some commentators that translate that last part, but I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go except with a mighty hand. And we know that was what was going to happen. Okay, God, you know, of course God knew what was going on. God knew what Pharaoh was going to do and that Pharaoh was going to need some strong persuasion before he was ready to let the children of Israel go free. Uh, they had gotten used to that, to the, the slavery in their economy. I mean, it kept everything down, all right? The fact that they had all this uh, forced labor, working for free, building their cities and so on, uh, that was tremendous for the Egyptian economy. It kept things cheaper. But the idea is that God knew what was going to happen, that Pharaoh wasn't going to let these people go so easily. And he says this to, to Moses uh, to prepare him for what's coming. You know, God knows, but he wants Moses to understand, look, go to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go three days journey into the wilderness to sacrifice them. He's not going to let you go. I'm going to tell you right up front, all right? He's not going to let you go. But I want to tell you this so to, to prepare you that this ministry is not going to be so easy, Moses. It's not going to be a quick kind of a slam dunk thing. It's going to take a while, so just get your mind wrapped around that, okay? So, you know, that kind of thing. Verse 20. He's not going to let you go. Okay, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Well, the idea is that they weren't stealing from the Egyptians. This was back pay. Okay? This amounted to back pay for all the centuries of forced labor, which uh, the Egyptians uh, put the uh, Jewish people through, forcing them to work for free as slaves, now God was saying, you know what, this is time for you to leave and for you to get your back pay. So you go and I'll put a fear of you on the people. They're going to want to give you this stuff just to get rid of you. Okay? You know, whatever. After the plagues, whatever you want. Here it is. Just get out of here is the idea. Okay? Now, but this idea that when somebody worked as a slave for you, that, you know, when their time had came to be set free, uh, this was something God incorporated into his very law, that you weren't to send them away empty-handed. Turn to Deuteronomy 15 once. I just want you to see the fairness of God and the kindness of God. Deuteronomy 15, of course, this comes later, but um, here God in his law incorporates this principle, uh, and he said in verse 12, 
If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your winepress. From what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give to him. So God is saying, look, if somebody has to sell themselves into slavery to you to pay off a debt, that's what the idea was. They're only to work six years. The seventh year, you're to let them go free. They're your brothers. They're your sisters. So what you do is you don't send them away empty-handed. I've blessed you through their hard work. Now you bless them by giving them enough to get them, uh, give them a fresh start. And, then, and I'll bless you for blessing them. But I don't want anybody having to, it's a, a fresh start, okay? Uh, and God says, look, I'm the God of second chances. People get themselves into debt. They have to put themselves into slavery for a time to work off that debt. But when they're done, I want them to have a fresh start. Give them liberally from your flocks, your, your fields, uh, your wine press, that they can have a fresh start. Well, chapter 4, Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me. And I thought about the elders of Israel. Or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, What is in your hand? He said, A rod. Now, let me stop there and say this. I want you to notice that when it comes to serving God, he often uses what's already in our hand. You say, what do you mean? Well, in Moses' case, God asked him, what, what is in your hand? He said, a shepherd's rod. God says, I'll use that. You're going to become a shepherd to my people Israel. Many centuries later, he would say to Paul the apostle, before he was Paul the apostle, he said to him, what is in your hand? A pen. I'm a scholar. God says, I'm going to use that. You're going to be used by me to write a big portion of my word. To Peter, he said, Peter, what's in your hand? A net. I'm a fisherman. Well, I will use that. You're going to become a fisher of men. The same kind of tenaciousness and patience that goes into fishing for real fish goes into evangelizing lost men and women. You know, and I always think about the young mom who's got maybe one, two, or three children, you know, uh, under the age of four or five. And she's thinking to herself, you know, how can God use me? And God would say to her, well, what's in your hand? What's in my hand? Bottles and diapers. Bottles and diapers. I can use that. At this point in your life, you can serve me in the nursery. It's only for a season. Those kids are going to grow up. But right now, if you want to serve me, and this is where you are focusing your attention, then you go ahead and serve me in the nursery, and uh, that's where you can be a blessing. One pastor put it this way, said, and I quote, If you wonder how you can serve God, how you can be used by Him, take a look at what's in your hand. God gave you gifts when you were born, simply waiting to be activated when you were born again. You're already doing that which uh, He will energize and empower for ministry. So what's in your hand? A computer, a hammer, a basketball, that's what he will use for his glory, end quote. Whatever we got going on, whatever we have a passion for, God can use that for his glory. I was watching one of our videos for the, uh, a series we were watching, and uh, a gentleman started coming to a church, uh, and the pastor made it a point to, to sit down with the new people and ask them, well, 
you know, what are your interests, what are your passions to see if we can use that, those in ministry? And he says, well, I am really passionate about barefoot water skiing. Pastor, just stop for a second. Okay. Oh, I'm, I'm passionate about it, you know. Barefoot water skiing, man, I just love it. Okay, um, all right. Uh, and the guy says, I would love to start a ministry teaching people how to do it. And the pastor was like, well, okay. The pastor said, you can't believe how God used this ministry. Young people, older people. And he said, he, God used it to touch so many people in our church. You just don't know what God can use. So don't sell yourself short. Whatever you have a heart for, a passion for, who knows if God has put it there because he wants to use it for ministry in some way. So, um, Now, when Moses expressed his concern that the elders of Israel wouldn't believe that God had sent him uh, to them as a deliverer, uh, God gave him three miraculous signs he could use to prove to them that God did, in fact, send Moses to them as a deliverer. Verse 3, and he said, uh, what's in your, you know, they're not going to believe me. What if they say that, you know, God didn't send you? What's in your hand? A rod. God says in verse 3, uh, cast it to the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. So that was the first sign, miraculous sign. They don't believe that I've sent you, take your shepherd's rod, throw it on the ground, it'll become a snake, then reach out, pick it up by the tail, it'll become a rod once again. The next miraculous sign to prove that God had sent Moses to them, we see in verses 6 to 8. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, Now put your hand in your bosom. Or in other words, just kind of stick it in your, you know, do, your, do a little Napoleon thing here. And put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, Put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom and behold it was restored like his other flesh then it will be if they do not believe you nor heed the message of the first sign that they might believe the message of the latter sign okay and then god gave moses a third miraculous sign to confirm his call uh, to the people that god had uh, called them to be a deliverer verse 9 and it shall be if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land and the water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land now the idea that god will confirm through signs and wonders that a person or a group of people has been called by him to preach a message of deliverance well that's consistent with the Great Commission. Turn to Mark 16. Remember what Jesus said to his guys before he ascended back to heaven after his resurrection. Mark 16, verse 15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Of course, the gospel is a message of deliverance that God wants to deliver you from the power of sin and death and Satan. And um, we go into all the world to preach this message to every creature, every person. Verse 17, 
And these signs will follow. Keep that in mind. These signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now, I don't have time to get into all of what that means. You can, you can go online and dig out our, Matthew, our Mark study, and we focused on those last few verses and explained all that's involved there. But the idea that these signs will follow those who believe, who go out preaching the gospel, and so on. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 3. The writer says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? In other words, Jesus preached first, then his disciples, after he ascended back to the Father, went out preaching as well. Uh, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. I've said it before, let me say it again. Signs and wonders, miracles, should follow after spirit-filled believers. Not every time, not every day, not everything you do. But they should accompany in some way, shape, or form uh, spirit-filled believers. Listen to me. Spirit-filled believers should never follow or run or chase after signs and wonders. Okay? As we go out preaching the gospel, God confirms that this is his message. We are his servants. He does so with the miraculous um, many times. But we as Christians should never run around uh, after signs and wonders. There are Christians who uh, that's all they do is run out. They find out, you know, who's speaking where and they run after this person because, you know, this person's always doing some kind of miracle, which... A lot of it is not miracles at all, but you understand. It's a lot of hucksters, a lot of gullible people out there who simply believe that, you know, this. and some of these guys, these evangelists have been exposed as frauds, okay? We see it today, okay, that, um, that, that Christians are running after signs and wonders, and it's sad because that's not what God intended for his people to do. Several years ago, there was a teaching blowing through the church called Power Evangelism. Power evangelism, what was it? It basically taught that there was no way you could effectively evangelize the lost unless you did it through signs and wonders. So it was very big on the supernatural, the miraculous, because without it, they said, you cannot bring people to Christ. You have to have signs and wonders to effectively evangelize the lost. Well, you know, if you don't know your Bible, that may sound like it makes sense. But a lot of times these folks are very superficial in their understanding of the word. You remember how that um, Jesus said of John the Baptist that he, there was no greater prophet than John that has ever lived. Isaiah, Elijah, Elisha. He said of those born of women, John the Baptist was the greatest prophet that has ever lived. But notice what he said in John chapter 10. He said, John the Baptist, this is Jesus talking, John the Baptist performed no sign, no miracles. But all the things that John spoke about this man, Jesus Christ, was true. And many believed in him there at that time. John the Baptist was the greatest prophet that ever lived, yet he did no miracles. Why was he so great? Well, first of all, he got to introduce the Messiah. That's pretty spectacular. 
But John's whole ministry was to preach the truth about Jesus. He preached the truth about Christ, and through the truth that John preached, many wound up getting saved. What did Paul say in Romans 10, verse 17? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. He doesn't say miracles or signs and wonders. He says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Peter put it this way in his first epistle. He says that we were born again, saved, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, listen, through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. The idea that we need signs and wonders to do the work of God is, un is untrue. Jesus Christ did more miracles than anyone, anyone. In fact, John said he did so many miracles that I, I suppose all the books in the world couldn't contain everything he did. Did those miracles force people to get saved? No. When it was all said and done, most of the people that followed him wound up turning on him. Only a handful remained loyal to him. But of the thousands and thousands of people that he ministered to in three, three years of ministry, only 500 in one place remained loyal, plus the, 12, or the 11. And nobody was compelled to get saved because Jesus did miracles. Miracles are wonderful. They will confirm faith where faith exists. They will bring people to salvation who are open and willing, but they'll never force somebody to get saved. In fact, the Bible says that what really touches hearts and opens eyes and brings people to salvation is the Word of God, preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, at this point, Moses tells the Lord that he doesn't feel he's gifted enough for this ministry. Verse 10, Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Moses is saying, Lord, I can't be your spokesman to your people, Israel, or to Pharaoh. I'm not a very good speaker. Okay? I don't talk good. Okay, is the idea. Now, some actually believe that Moses had some kind of a speech impediment. Maybe he stuttered or something else. He says, I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Possibly Moses had some kind of a speech impediment, and he believes that that disqualifies him from this ministry because he's going to have to be a spokesman on behalf of God. Now look, most of you have heard my testimony. I'm not going to get into the whole thing. But this is where I was coming from. Uh, when God called me into the ministry, uh, I was terrified. I felt extremely inadequate and un I couldn't do it. I mean, all my life I had this paralyzing fear of public speaking. I mean, paralyzing. If anyone asked me to get up in front of people for any reason, my heart would start pounding. My mouth would get as dry as cotton. I would hyperventilate. I was like, I just couldn't do it. Okay? It was bad. All right? Really bad. And so here, the Lord says, Philip, I want you to be a pastor. I'm like, what? I, I know where Moses is coming from. Lord, I can't be a pastor. I can't get up in front of people and talk and, and, and speak and teach and so on. But God was with me. Whom the Lord calls, he what? Equips. And as I've looked back, and it was rough for a long time. I mean, I can't tell you that, you know, right away he took away the fear of speaking. It took years. But as I have looked back over the course of my ministry, um, 
I've never doubted for a minute, as Paul the Apostle said with regard to his own call in the ministry, I am what I am by the grace of God. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Here's the thing. God is never asking us to be able. He's only asking us to be available. That's all. He'll supply the power. The only choice we have is, are we going to trust God? Or are we going to not trust God? Are we going to let our fear and feeling of inadequacy keep us from taking a step in faith to see what God might do in our lives or through our lives? Or are we going to trust him and take a step in faith like Peter took a step of faith out of that boat onto the Sea of Galilee and he walked on water? Say, but yeah, he's, he began to sink at one point. Yeah, okay. Uh, but he still walked on water for a while. I mean, it's more than can be said for the 11 other disciples that stayed in the boat and played it safe. I'd rather walk on water for a little while and then if I get a little overwhelmed by the circumstances, sink, the Lord will lift me up. But at least I've tried to trust him. And that's the idea. We need to take steps of faith. The idea that, look, I'm not worthy. You think you're telling God something he doesn't know? I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not adequate. Yeah, that's right. You're not. You know, and we've read it a hundred times. But one more time, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, turn there. Because this is so fundamental for ministry. Listen to what Paul said to the Corinthians on this very subject. And I'm going to read it to you out of the NLT. 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 26. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things, us, okay, that are powerless to shame those that are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing that what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. What Paul is saying is, look, when God wants to do his greatest work, he doesn't go to the universities, he doesn't go to the very gifted. He goes to the drug addicts, the drug dealers. The Look at the history of Calvary Chapel. How many of our pastors at one time you know, were drug pushers and drug users and so on? Their families had written them off, guys like Mike McIntosh. And God reached down and saved these guys and filled them with his spirit. He completely transformed their lives. And they went on to pastor churches of 10, 20,000 people. The world looks at that, the universities and, and the professors of theology, and they look at that and go, how could this be? How could these foolish, weak, untrained men have churches this big and people getting saved like this? Because God takes the weak, the foolish, the base, and the nobodies to do his greatest work through that he gets all the glory. And guys, that's what God is wanting to get is the glory for the work he does. And having said that, it means any one of us can be used by God. Because God doesn't look at talent or abilities. He just said he looks for those whose hearts are loyal and those who say, here I am, use me. And that's all he's looking for. A loyal heart and a willing heart. And God will use, he'll do the rest. Back to Exodus 4, verse 11. So the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Now Moses said, look, Lord, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm capable. I don't talk very good. You need a spokesman. I, I don't think I'm up to the job. 
And the Lord said, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Guys, that's an interesting and important statement by God, one that we really need to understand. First of all, is God actually saying that he makes some people with handicaps at birth? And if that's what he's saying, how can we even call him a good and loving God? Because that's cruel. Well, let me just say this, just up front. Yes, that's what God's saying. That's what God's saying, that he makes some people handicapped for his glory. Now, a good example of this would be found in John chapter 9. Why don't you turn there real quick? John's Gospel chapter 9. I'll show you what I mean. John 9 verse 1. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now you have to understand the question. Because the rabbis taught that all physical handicap, that was a, a judgment of God for sin. All right, That uh, those people that had these handicaps, blind and mute and so on, um, that was a judgment of God upon their lives because of sin. We see a, a kind of a form of this in the health and wealth teaching today. That the reason you're sick is because you're not right with God. There's sin in your life. Get rid of the sin and God will heal you. So we see it around today. But the problem was, well, what happened if somebody was born blind or lame or mute? They're born that way. So what happens then? The rabbis taught prenatal sin, that they could actually sin in the womb, and that would cause God to judge them, and they'd be born with this kind of handicap. Okay. So when you got bad theology, you got to keep, you know, pushing it and, and, and defending it. It gets a little bizarre at times, then though. Okay. This is one of those times. But um, they said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Notice verse three. Jesus answered. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, because, look, not all sickness is the result of God's judgment. Sometimes it is. That's why you got to examine yourself to see, well, I'm going through this prolonged period of sickness or infirmity. Is there something in my life that maybe I need to confess, and then God might heal me? But, guys, please, we live in a fallen world, and um, sickness is a part of it. We'll talk about that more in just a second. Uh, not everybody who has a sickness or a handicap is being judged by God or punished by God, okay? So Jesus said, look, this, this man didn't sin nor his parents, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. God was going to heal him to get the glory from the healing. So God is saying, look, this was allowed that God might receive glory from this man's life when God would heal him of his blindness. Now, hang on to that. We'll get back to it in a moment. But at this point, of course, I know a lot of people would say, well, that's just plain cruel. That God would allow or cause people to be born with a handicap. I mean, again, how can we say God is a good and loving God if he does things like that to people? Okay, And um, I think to say that God creates handicapped people is probably the wrong idea. He allows some people to be born handicapped. That's more along the lines, look, Sin created handicaps and disease and sickness and death, not God. We have to keep that in mind, all right? 
Um, God doesn't create handicap. That sin did that. This is not the world God wanted for us. We have to rem remember that. He made a paradise for man to live in. That was God's design for us, to live in a paradise where we would never know sickness or death. It was man's own rebellion against God that caused the fall and brought into this world death, deformity, disease, and handicaps. But since, listen, since this is the world we have brought upon ourselves, God is not against using the effects of sin to glorify himself so that people know he is real and that they come to him and get saved. What do I mean? Well, there are those that are born with handicaps or diseases or whatever that God eventually heals and gets glory from that, that people know, hey, he's real. Look at how he's healed this person. This is going on a lot more in third world countries than in advanced nations like America. Okay, we have access to medical care. We tend to put our trust in doctors and in hospitals and, and the advanced medical uh, care that we, can, uh, we have access to. I'm not putting down doctors and hospitals. I thank God for them. I'm just saying in places where they have no medical facilities, no doctors like that, they, they have to trust God. And God is healing people all the time in these countries. I, I hear reports from the mission field all the time how God is healing severe uh, handicaps and diseases and even raising people from the dead. He's getting glory from those things. Many others he does not heal. And he uses their life as they as Paul the Apostle said, when I'm weak, I'm what? Strong. I saw a guy, I couldn't believe it. This guy was born without arms and legs. He is the most dynamic evangelist you ever want to meet. I mean, people are drawn to him because they can't believe what they're seeing. That this guy's attitude is so upbeat. He's so filled with the Holy Spirit, giving glory to God. People are getting saved like crazy. That's just one example of people who have born with deformities or disease or handicaps or even later on in life. Like that little uh, Bethany uh, Hamilton, a soul surfer who had her arm bitten off by the shark and God opened the door through that for her to be a witness to thousands and thousands of people all over the world. Others who remain sick and handicapped, God brings his people alongside them to minister to them, to love them, to reach out to them. You know how many hospitals have been started by believers? How many nursing homes and things have been started by Christians? And they love these people, people that others don't have time for. Yet Christians come around, they love them. It's a witness for God. So God uses these things, okay? No, this is not the world he wanted for us. When Jesus stood by the tomb of Lazarus, remember in John 11? Of course, Jesus purposely waited for Lazarus to die, and then waited until he was buried four days before coming to Bethany. That was the hometown of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They were good, close friends of Jesus. Whenever he would minister in Jerusalem, he would come to their house in the evening to spend the night. Uh, those nights that he didn't go into the Garden of, uh, of Gethsemane and pray all night. But uh, it was his home away from home. And uh, he spent a lot of time, loved his family. So when Lazarus got sick, Jesus was ministering out by the Jordan somewhere. And they quickly, the girl sent uh, a messenger to come quickly uh, Lazarus is very ill. He's at the point of death. Jesus waits two days and then makes the two-day journey to Bethany. By the time he gets there, 
uh, Lazarus has been dead and buried for four days. You know the story, right? And they finally led Jesus to the tomb. And Jesus, it says, was, um, the Greek is very strong. He was enraged in his spirit. He was furious. You say, what was he so angry about? I believe he was angry because he saw all the people weeping. All the people grieving over a loved one that had died. And Jesus was so angry that mankind had brought upon itself this horrible thing called death when he never intended this for us. Of course, we know the plan of redemption was already in place. But the idea that, you know, that God enjoys watching us suffer is absolutely untrue. Jesus was so angry. And then it says something I've never been able to forget in all my years of being in ministry. And then it just simply says two words, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Now, it wasn't the loud wailing that the professional mourners engaged in at the tomb. That was Clio uh, in the Greek. Uh, very loud wailing. They believed the more you yelled and you mourned and grieved, the louder you did it, the more you were honoring the dead. But the word that was used of Jesus when he wept was the cruel. And it's a word that simply means to bow your head and to burst into silent sobs. Jesus Christ was weeping. People say, well, he's weeping over his friend. No. Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew that. He wasn't weeping over a dead friend. He was weeping over a dying world, a world that was ravaged by sin. God never intended this for us. God never wanted this for us. But this is the world we chose. This is the, the predicament we put ourselves in because of our own rebellion. However, the issue, <clears throat> excuse me, the real issue that God is addressing in Exodus 4, verse 11, isn't the origin of handicaps and sickness. Listen, it's how God can use even the most flawed and inadequate person to work through. That's really the issue. How? Because, guys, it isn't the instrument that matters. It's the one that uses the instrument. We put all the emphasis on the instrument, you know? When somebody's got a really powerful ministry, everyone wants to put that person on a pedestal. Well, you know, God says, look, it's not the instrument that deserves the glory. It's the one who uses the instrument. God is the one who deserves the glory for the things that he does. And that's the point he's trying to get across here to Moses. Moses, you're not the issue. Okay, you don't talk good. I knew that. You're not the issue. The issue isn't, are you able? It's, are you available? Verse 11, once again, So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall say. But he said, that's Moses, O oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. What's he saying? Lord, uh, I think I'll pass. Well, you go send some, just send somebody else. Now look, <laughs> Moses first gives us the impression that he's, he feels he's not worthy to be used by God. But now we get what's really going on. He doesn't really want to be used by God. You say, well, why not? He's 80 years old. I don't know. He's tired. He's worn out. Okay. The thought of getting into a new ministry, which is going to require a lot of energy, a lot of time, and so on, and certainly it was going to. 
I think Moses just felt, you know, I'm, I've, I've put behind me the idea of delivering your people, Lord. That was a long time ago. I've kind of gotten used to just hanging outside and being with the sheep, and this is a kind of a nice life, and I, I don't really want to rock the boat. I'm kind of old, kind of tired. Will you just send somebody else? You know, guys, when I first got into ministry, that was 35 years ago. The problem back then, for the most part now, in general, seemed to be that people wanted to be used by God, but they again felt totally inadequate, unworthy. And so I had to kind of encourage them, like I'm doing right here, to say to them, look, you know, God just wants you to have a, a loyal heart and be willing to be used. All right, it's not any, not any ability on your part. He's going to do the work and so on. Whom the Lord calls, he equips and so on. And um, I would have to encourage them, okay, to not look at themselves and their shortcomings, but keep their eyes on the Lord. Well, I could do that because that's almost why I didn't get into ministry. When God called me, as I just said, Lord, I'm not able to do this. I'm not worthy to serve you. And God had to show me, look, again, it's, I'm not, no, you're not worthy. But if you're available and willing, I will use you. Now, that was a long time ago. Today, things have changed. And I'm speaking in general terms because our church has got many, many servants. I mean, I thank God for you guys, you gals. I mean, just, we have a lot of servants for this little church, and I'm very thankful for that. I'm just talking about what I've seen across the board as I've talked to pastors who can't find people to, to do ministry or pastors that have got to, you know, clean the churches and, and clean the toilets, which we are not above doing. But it takes men away from studying the Word of God and praying to be used in the pulpit and so on. Um, today it seems to be that things have changed. It seems more and more Christians simply don't want to serve God. They don't want to serve God. They're too busy with their own lives. They can't be bothered. Let somebody, Lord, use somebody else seems to be the general attitude plaguing the church of Jesus Christ today. For the most part. Again, a lot of people who are willing to serve and are serving. But I see people that could serve. I see people that have the time to serve. And they're so busy with other things. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? The devil has got you right where he wants you. He's got you focusing all your time and energy on things that don't matter, will not last. You know? All the hobbies and the kids' recreations and all these things that, you know what, are not evil in and of themselves, but are taking you away from the true, truly important things, which is serving God and being used by him. Things that will give to you treasures in heaven that will never pass away. It's sad to see it. Well, Exodus 4, verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be uh, to him as God, and you shall take this rod in your hand uh, with which you shall do these signs. So God is saying, okay, look, then here's what we're going to do, all right? I'm talking to you about what you're supposed to do, but you can't speak well, so look, 
you pass it on to Aaron, okay, you'll be like God to him, okay, like I'm being to you, and you tell him what I've told you to speak, that he can go ahead and speak it. You take the rod uh, of God, and uh, you go ahead and do these miracles in front of the elders and Pharaoh, and that's how we'll work it. Now, let me just say this to you. Whenever we argue with God and get him to modify his will, to conform to our will in any way, shape, or form, we are settling for less than God's best. As we're going to see, Aaron was not a blessing to Moses. For the most part, he was a problem throughout Moses' ministry. You remember in Exodus 32, it was Aaron that instigated the worship of the golden calf. In fact, he made the golden calf and the altar he built that the thing sat on. Later on, Aaron and Miriam, Moses' brother and sister, openly led a mutiny against Moses in Numbers chapter 12. So Aaron, you know, was not a real blessing in Moses' life. Let's put it that way. I like what Warren Worsby had to say in the subject. He said, and I quote, When God in his anger gives us what we selfish, selfishly want, that gift rarely, rarely turns out to be a blessing. And then he quotes Numbers 11, verse 33, But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. You remember the story behind that? How that the people were tired of the bread from heaven. They were crying, we want meat, we want meat. And God sent them meat. They were like vultures. They pounced on these quail and began to just, you know, cook them and stuff their faces with the meat. God was very displeased and brought a judgment upon them. Of course, you remember when the people demanded a king, you know. They were tired of the judges. Samuel was the last judge. They wanted a king like the nations around them. And so God gave them Saul because Saul was the kind of king the people wanted. Tall, dark, handsome, not a man of character, but all outward stuff. In Hosea chapter 13, verse 11, God recounts that to the people through Hosea. He said, I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. It wasn't a blessing is the idea. Whenever you sell it, God was their king. Samuel felt bad that they were demanding a king. God says, don't feel bad. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. And so God gave them a human king when God was their king. You can't get much better than that. can't get any better than that. I'm sorry. Worse, because I want to say one of the most painful judgments God can send is to let his people have their own way. The lesson is plain. God knows us better than we know ourselves. So we must trust him and obey what he tells us to do. When we tell God our weaknesses, we aren't sharing anything he doesn't already know. The will of God will never lead you where the power of God can't enable you. So walk by faith in his promises, end quote. Well, Exodus 4, verse 18. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on donkeys, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand, and the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, See that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart. Now, we'll have more to say about that next time. So that he will not let the people go. 
Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. We've already talked about this, but let me just say it again quickly, okay? Sometimes the word firstborn in Scripture uh, means firstborn chronologically. The literal firstborn child in a family, that kind of thing. But many times the word means firstborn in the sense of favored one or superior in rank. Okay, favored one or superior in rank. You remember, as we just finished Genesis, that Joseph had two sons. The firstborn was Manasseh. The secondborn was Ephraim. And yet in Jeremiah 31, verse 9, God said, For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. And in that context, what God is saying is, although Ephraim was second to his older brother Manasseh, Ephraim, who wasn't perfect by any means, was the more spiritual one, the one that loved God more, the one that God was going to bless above the older. See, he was the favored one, even though he wasn't the real firstborn. Of course, this ultimately applies to Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, why don't you turn there? And this is important, and I'll tell you why in just a second. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul is talking about Jesus. He said, He is the image of the invisible God. Um, the, the way he phrases this, um, the image is a, was an um, image left on a coin when they used the stamp to press the image of Caesar onto it. Okay, the die. And uh, Paul is saying that uh, God stamped his very image on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? But he said, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now the JWs pick up on that and they say that, that before Jehovah God made anyone or anything else, the first creative act was to make Jesus. He's the firstborn over all creation, they say. See it right here? Yeah, I see it. But you don't understand the word there, prototokos, doesn't mean first chronologically. It simply means of all those who have ever been born, Jesus is superior in rank to all of them. He is the favored one. He is the Son of God. Okay? Jump down to verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in, in all things he may have the preeminence. The firstborn from the dead. Was Jesus Christ the first one ever raised from the dead? No. In the Old Testament, we had numerous people that were raised from the dead. You had Jesus who raised three from the dead that we know of during his ministry. No. Jesus Christ, when he rose from the dead, he was the firstborn in the sense he was the superior one of all those who were ever raised from the dead. Why? Because he was raised from the dead never to die again. They all died again. Lazarus, uh, you know, uh, the widow of Nain's son, they all died again. But Jesus, when he rose from the dead, rose never to die again. So he was the firstborn, the preeminent one. But here in verse 22, guys, in Genesis, uh, Exodus 4, God isn't saying that Israel was the first nation he ever made. He is saying that of all the nations in the world, he favored Israel above them all. They were his chosen people. 
through them would come the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So they were the firstborn. His firstborn in the sense that of all the peoples on the face of the earth, he favored Israel above them all. Well, verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him, met Moses, and sought to what? Kill him. Then Zipporah, his, Moses' wife, took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. God let Moses go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Now, how many have read that and thought, what in the world is going on here? Okay. Apparently, after Moses' firstborn chronological son was born, that would be Gershom, okay, Gershom, he circumcised him as God had commanded, right? Well, Zipporah saw this whole thing take place, and she was so appalled that... Um, she forbid Moses from circumcising their second-born son, Eliezer. All right, Eliezer. Moses, not wanting to press the issue and bring a major division into his marriage, listened to his wife. But in the process, he disobeyed the Lord. You see, circumcision was the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants. And God said, anyone of my people who is not circumcised the eighth day, any of the boys... Who is not circumcised, they are to be put outside uh, my people. They're to be excommunicated, all right? Uh, and they are to be considered a Gentile, basically. They're no longer a part of the covenant people of God because they refuse to undergo the sign of the covenant. And here, God's prophet to the nation is in violation of this very important ritual in his own home. I mean, how could Moses lead God's people in obedience to him if he was disobedient, listen, to the one fundamental commandment that the Lord had given to the people of Israel with regard to their being the covenant people of God? This was so important to God. When Moses took it lightly, I guess, when he listened to his wife more than to the Lord, he wasn't really showing good leadership in his family. Remember what Paul said with regard to pastors? He said, if somebody doesn't have control over their own house, they, don't, they can't be over God's family. If, if their family is out of control, then they can't be over God's family. Okay? You have to exercise, as a leader, we have to exercise uh, you know, leadership in our homes. Uh, and, of course, if you're in ministry, you've got to exercise proper leadership there. Here God was calling Moses to be his spokesman, his prophet to lead the people in obedience to all that he was going to tell them. And Moses isn't even obeying what God has said in the most fundamental commandment he gave to the people of Israel, that the men, the boys should be circumcised on the eighth day as a part of the covenant God made with Abraham. Well, apparently, God was so angry with Moses over this that he uh, struck him with some kind of an illness, an illness that would have um, killed him, if Zipporah hadn't given in and circumcised her son. She knew what was going on somehow, okay? 
So she went ahead and she circumcised Eliezer. However, she was not happy about it. She was pretty furious. She took the foreskin of her son, threw it at Moses' feet, and said, you know what? You are a bloody husband to me. Okay, I guess that was a real stinger. Uh, <laughs> you're a bloody guy. <laughs> I guess that was, that was harsh language, I guess. Uh, no, she was pretty mad, okay? And uh, I don't know if Zipporah was a real believer. I don't know where she was with the Lord. Uh, if she was saved, and she probably was, she wasn't very uh, strong in her walk with the Lord. Her obedience to God wasn't such where she was willing to do whatever needed to be done to obey God. She didn't realize, I don't think at first, the gravity and importance of this ministry God was calling her husband into. But I think McGee hit it on the head for those, well, let me just read what he said. He said, there is a real danger when husband and wife do not agree completely in spiritual matters. That is the reason Scripture warns against believers and non-believers getting married, unquote. But again, we don't know if Zipporah was an unbeliever. But if she was an unbeliever, that would answer a lot of questions right there. But um, this incident, guys, plus uh, Zipporah's apparent lack of faith in the Lord may have been the reason why Moses sent her and their sons home to her father. You can read about that in Genesis, uh, Exodus 18, verses 2 and 3. Okay, Maybe Moses felt like, you know what, this woman's going to be a drag on me. This is going to be a tough ministry. This is going to be a very tough ministry, and I don't. I, I have to focus on everything God wants me to do. I can't have my wife dragging me down if she's not going to be with me on this. Now, later on, as God brought Moses to, uh, to Egypt and began the ministry there, eventually uh, Jethro joined Moses with Zipporah and the kids, so there was reconciliation there. But Moses, I think, sent her home because he realized at this point in their relationship or in her walk with God, um, she was going to be a source of holding him back uh, when he needed to be fully focused on what God was telling him to do. Well, verse 27, And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people, the elders, is what is in view here, believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. So, so far so good, right? Um, Moses had successfully convinced the elders that God had sent him and the purpose was that he was going to be used by God to deliver them out of the bondage of Egypt. Okay, so far so good. Of course, the hard part was coming. We'll study that next time when he has to convince Pharaoh now that God has sent him to deliver these people and Pharaoh needs to let them go. And we'll see how that all goes the next time we get together. But uh, some interesting lessons we're going to learn from that whole thing as we get into chapter 5. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the lessons that you have taught us tonight. And we pray, Lord, you'll give us grace to apply those lessons uh, into our lives. That, Lord, nothing is hard for you. And that, Lord, you can use anyone to do your work through. 
as long as, Lord, their hearts are loyal to you and they are available. Now, Lord, we just pray and say like Isaiah, here we are, send us. Lord, use us in these last days beyond anything we can even hope or imagine. And Lord, we just thank you. Um, you are an incredible God. And we thank you that you're our God, that you want to become to us whatever we need. Lord, that's an incredible thing to think of. You want to love us and uh, bestow blessings upon us. Lord, you're such an incredibly kind, gracious, and loving God. And Lord, we thank you. Father, please continue to bless these studies for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.